0: Hello and welcome to Series 8, Episode 4 of Out. Hello. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you are having a good day. First of all, my voice is a little bit croaky again, and I feel like I'm saying this every episode this series, but it's Sunday morning. I've crept upstairs before the rest of the house is awake. Even the cat's still asleep, so that I can do the intro of this beautiful episode that I have to share with you today this is such a wonderful chat with Dan O'Neill who is a filmmaker and a biologist which I think I think that's maybe a first for out having a biologist. He's super interesting, he makes incredible work and I am so excited to share that conversation with you. But before, I need to thank you actually for getting in touch. I had lots of emails after last week's show with Emmett de Monterey. I loved that conversation with Emmett. It seemed that it really resonated with lots of you as well. And if you haven't listened to that one yet, After you finish listening to this, go back and listen to that one as well because I think it's really special. In fact, I've got an email that I'd like to share about it. Hi Susie. I just wanted to thank you for your amazing conversation with Emmett DeMontre. As a gay man with cerebral palsy myself, the same type as Emmett in fact, so much of Emmett's story resonated with me, particularly watching the boys play football at school and liking the physicality of them and realising that there was maybe more to it. Another thing that hit me like a truck was how he finished with talking about finding your tribe. This is something I've been searching for most of my life, not quite knowing where I fit. I'm a horse mad country boy that doesn't fit in with the media stereotype of gay culture and certainly isn't accessible for people with mobility issues, but I make it work and I have found my tribe in the horse world and adaptive sports. Thanks again for representing the varied people who make up the LGBTQIA plus community and that's from Chris. And I received lots of emails like that about Emmett's conversation last week. Lots of different parts of Emmett's story that people really connected to, and thank you. Thank you for getting in touch, and I'll share some more of those over the series. Right, let's have another email before we get into today's conversation. Dear Susie, I started listening to Out a few months ago after a recommendation from my beautiful boyfriend, Rob and it's provided an amusing, moving, and fascinating soundtrack while I've been decorating my new house. It's amazing to learn about the different experiences of people across the queer spectrum and to recognize the similarities that often bind our community together. I wanted to write to thank you for bringing these stories to us and to add my own story into the mix. I'm a 38-year-old gay cis man, and I was aware of my same-sex attraction from an early age and accepted that warm feeling I got when I saw an attractive man or Tigra from Thundercats, without a second thought. When I was around 11, I found a word for it and gleefully announced to myself in the safety of an empty house, I'm gay. Instinctively knowing it was something I couldn't yet share with the world. I remained proudly but privately gay throughout my early teens, dreaming that one day I'd have a handsome prince and my happily ever after, as my Disney VHSs had promised. As I got older, I came to the uncomfortable realization the handsome prince would remain a dream if I couldn't be more open about my gayness. So I came out to my friends in the sixth form, some of whom were gay themselves, and started buying Gay Times magazine from WH Smith in an attempt to embrace my sexuality and be more publicly out. It was a relief to uncover this long hidden side of myself at last, although coming out would not have been the final obstacle of the gay assault course, but the first. The problem was I really had no idea how to be gay. Since attaching the word to myself, it had taken on a whole bunch of connotations beyond same-sex attraction that often felt alien or unappealing to me. Gay was a way of acting, talking, dressing, looking, and having sex, and the stereotypes cultivated by a straight society seemed to be confirmed by the scraps of gay culture I managed to find. As a naive 13-year-old, queer as folk, opened my eyes to the existence of happy openly gay men but also offered a version of gay life that I felt little connection with a life of flamboyant characters partying and anonymous sex fueled by drink drugs and excessive amounts of hair gel. I was an awkward nerdy farmer's son from Cumbria who just wanted to meet a nice boy and settle down but nothing I read or saw seemed to suggest that that was an option. For a long time I felt lost in the gay world and resented what seemed like a culture that excluded or overlooked those that didn't fit into certain tribes, or have certain body types, or like certain things. Having spent much of my life being criticised or ridiculed for not conforming to the expectations of straight men, it was heartbreaking to think that I might face that same prejudice and rejection from fellow gays. My perception of the gay community and my sense of exclusion was heightened by my own internalised homophobia, which made me want to disassociate myself from those aspects of gayness that I had come to see as negative. It also didn't help that I had undiagnosed autism, which comes with an inherent sense of separation, a tendency to take things at face value, and difficulties with social interactions. But my experience was grounded in a reality, where media portrays of gay men were limited to particular sections of the community, Since then I have slowly but surely found my way back to being gay and have learnt to embrace my own queerness and that of others. I couldn't have done that without learning about myself, facing my hang-ups and insecurities, getting my autism diagnosis, and gaining more self-confidence. But I also couldn't have done it without learning more about the queer world, which feels like it's grown and matured alongside me since I first stumbled out of the closet 20 years ago. It's now more open, more inclusive and more visible than ever before. Engaging with the queer world made me realise that we're all just people trying to find a way and that the sense of having a shared experience of otherness brings us together and often overrides our differences. The stories in this podcast are sharing that message with the world. I'm sure it's offered many people feeling lost and isolated hope that there's a place for them in our community. I know that it's helped me. Being out is a journey and I still have further to go, but every step is made so much easier when you know there are others walking the same way. Thank you for doing what you do. Much gay love. And that's from Neil, who says I can read out his name. And he says that he and Rob, his partner, are coming to see me in Kendall next week. Please come and say hello afterwards. Neil, your, your email just, yeah, really, really got me. And uh, that's exactly what I've tried to do with this podcast. And I'm so pleased that you found your way and that's what we're all just trying to do aren't we just trying to find find our way and be as happy as we can but thank you for sharing your thoughts and i'm sure your email will resonate with lots and lots of people right let's go on with today's conversation with the brilliant dan o'neill now i'm very excited for today's conversation i am with documentary filmmaker field biologist creative producer and explorer dan o'neill This is a first. It's an actual first on out. I've got an actual explorer in the room with me. Dan has the job that millions of children dream of having, and he has actually done it. He specialises in remote and challenging environments and has organised numerous expeditions in search of some of the world's rarest animals. From the jungles of the northern Amazon to the frozen peaks of Central Asia, he has been pretty much everywhere well to most places definitely he directed Snow Leopards Ghosts in the Snow a four part docu-series for BBC or you might be aware of him from Dan O'Neill Investigates where he explored the illegal wildlife trade and animal cruelty in the UK and also, After We've Gone, a documentary about how nature thrives after humans leave. Sobering, to say the least. Dan is also a passionate advocate for increased representation of the LGBTQ community in STEM, adventure and wildlife film careers. He says he is proud to share his story, which I'm sure will encourage others not to just consider a life in exploring, but also to know there's a place for our community there as well.
1: Welcome to the show. Dan. What an intro. Well, Thank I you saw... very much. I mean, you're an actual explorer. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a weird one. So you never really like you, that that line of like, am I that now? Um, I think is, you are. Well, the thing is, right, it's you do all of these crazy adventures and you go all around the world and you and you, and you, and you go to some of the most remote places and you and after a while, you just don't really you, you do so many different things in nature that that's kind of the catch all <laughs> you can say right. that's what your job is. <laughs> but yeah. It's very impressive. Oh, thank you. You're very impressive.
0: Oh, well, listen, this isn't about me. I mean, in many ways. it's No, it's
1: not. (laughs) Isn't it like your show?
0: Well, yeah, but it's my show basically where I go, aren't queer people brilliant? God, we're all great. Let's chat to someone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that is really good. And it's really important. Like, we have, I mean, you mentioned it in there, but that's one thing that in adventure, natural history... You just don't see that much of.
0: Yeah, I can imagine Mm. that. I was reading some articles where it was like, you know, showing, you know, 100 different sort of queer scientists Mm. and stuff like that. And you're always listed in these things. But it's quite sort of few and far between to actually find people that are doing it now and doing it in a way where they're sort of unapologetically themselves, where it's not a
1: footnote Mm. That's know? definitely it. I mean, the thing is, there are loads of queer scientists uh, of all over the world. Of course. Loads of queer adventurers. Yes. A lot of the time, those people are in countries where it's more, you know, dangerous for them of to course. be who they are. Yes. And I think that's a lot of it. Like yeah, a lot I'm of sure. some, most some of the most biodiverse countries that are in the world are also some of the most difficult to be at the moment, especially yes. for queer people. Yeah. Um, and actually, when I I recently did a series where it was highlighted and we released a like a kind of little video about it, mm. um, and someone who is in a country which has the death penalty. To for LGBT people Mm -hmm. and messaged me on Instagram being like can't talk about it here but thanks mate
0: wow
1: (laughs) and he's researching a really critically endangered um, animal that only exists in that country so it's like pretty pretty amazing stuff
0: because is that something obviously you go all over the globe I mean we've been trying to set this up for a couple of months just like oh where are you and where am I and I'd be like oh I'm in Gloucestershire and you'd be like well I'm just trying to shoot this rare bird um, don't shoot her. No, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm, I'm I'm following this rare bird in the, um, like, we've, we're both on the road, but in very different ways. Mm. But, you know, what's that like for you when you turn up in a country where it is enormously hostile for LGBTQ plus people? Obviously, you're there with a crew mm. and you've got fixers and you've got people that are making it work for you you seen that so you'd have like a fix like I mean sometimes we had not. so
1: we just did a five-part series called Giants
0: sorry I'm just gonna say fixes for people that sounds like very like industry chat <laughs> fixes is when you arrive in a country that you don't live in and you have someone that's local that understands how filming works but also understands like how to get around how to speak the local language and if there's different dialects and things like that so uh, so sorry, go on. Mm. Just in case anyone was going, Suze, what's a fixer? That's what a fixer is.
1: Yes. Yeah, so actually, it's the fixer that we spoke to right, okay. when we did. So we did this five part series called Giants, where mm-hmm. we went all around the world looking for the biggest animals in the world, yep. and then with CGI brought them brought, brought back their extinct ancestors. Very cool. Um, right. Okay. But when we went to Kenya, because we was we were going to do elephants, African yes. elephants. Um can't do big animals without the logistics. No, of, of course. Um, so we we went there, and, and because this that that series Giants was the first time in history an out openly LGBT person yes. had fronted a wildlife documentary. Yes, I saw um, that off for a major network. It was like one of those things where usually you wouldn't probably have to talk about that because you just don't say it but when uh, there were articles and things online it was like okay we're going to kenya um it's illegal there's jail time what do we do what do we say um and so the the production just made the uh we sat down and we talked about off the fence our amazing production company Mm -hmm. um and we chatted about what we would do and we made the decision to tell the fixers and everybody we worked with first before we flew there to, to gauge their reaction and to see that it was okay and actually everyone we worked with because most people in the world are pretty cool uh, were all yeah. like yeah it's fine don't worry babe um, and that was absolutely fine um, but like sometimes I don't have a team um, it's just like either I'm doing a project on my own or it's a science team which doesn't have like huge amounts of funding yeah because um, not
0: everything's filmed
1: yeah no not everything's sometimes filmed sometimes it's just <laughs> yeah just in world. Honduras for two months yeah. um, doing a research project that wasn't filmed so I went to the Philippines to do like a really small like self-made Project on the Philippine. Well, you eagle. you literally take just me and my mate Ben. And your um, and He was a camera operator. Right. And me and um, we just sort of did it as we Why went. Why that
0: specific eagle?
1: Um, because it's amazing. It's the I, largest I eagle it. in the world. Right. Um, How
0: big? What's the wing? What would about a meter then?
1: tall? Um, tall. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say wingspan. Oh no! Meter. Oh my god! No. I was going to say that. Two big 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 very big wings but it's the coolest thing about it it's the only bird of it's the only eagle with blue eyes um and it's evolutionarily different to every other eagle type so all those ones you go around um stellar sea eagles the white-tailed sea eagles we have here in yeah. the uk golden eagles yeah. harpy eagles in the amazon they're all much more related than this one eagle in the philippine archipelago which is entirely different Why? um because it, it it evolved separate on this island system right, um, by itself. yeah and it's the largest predator on the terrestrial archipelago of the Philippines. But why does it have blue Um, eyes? um, No one, well, I'm sure maybe someone knows, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Someone probably Did you ask him? Um, I did. I asked it to its face and it just squawked at me. Rude. (laughs) So rude. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, mean, and we wanted to see it in the wild, but unfortunately... the place that it lives uh, is in the political red zone of uh, Mindanao uh, in rebel occupied forests and so me and my mate Ben just went in a blacked out car with some conservationists up this mountain to try <gasps> and find it and um, did we did you, find it yeah it? we found it we, it flew past us in the early morning we woke up for so we went up actually at night um, because we didn't want to draw attention to ourselves and, and then, camped. then and camped in the in the forest in this rebel occupied forest what, what, how, how, how creepy are we talking the creepy crawlies uh, the creepy crawlies in the jungle yeah. oh my god awful yeah I mean, course, I, I, mean... I I can I'm getting I'm coming to terms with my fear of spiders and...
0: no you say that you sent me a picture of you holding a tarantula
1: mm, like, I, I, wasn't, I won't bring this guy I wasn't holding it oh you were just near it okay. <laughs> you okay. wouldn't see me holding it okay um, no I, well, I I looked I'm... at it so briefly because I was like ah, that's nice. Oh, <laughs> but I assumed you were holding it yeah so I well I would now probably just to face your fears moment but I um, yeah i am always I've always been a bit afraid of spiders all How spiders surprising. are venomous. yes so I feel like maybe I've just evolved properly you know, people yeah. who are like, they're fine. I'm like, that's, you know, you've... You're going to die. You gonna Have die you heard yet? about Darwin? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, I've got so much to ask you about. Sometimes we go chronologically, but it doesn't, uh, uh, there's no rhyme or reason to how we do mm. this podcast. So I'm just going to keep talking about this. What was the saying about like, you know, camping overnight to see this animal and then you actually get to see it when there's been like loads of build up to mm. work to seeing it? First of all, how exciting is that moment? And what was the first moment, your first expedition when you, you know, left uh, university and started, mm-hmm. I guess, research projects to begin yep. with before it was something that you were doing for the telly? Can you remember that moment where you saw something in the wild and thought, oh my God, every moment's been leading to this?
1: I think that that is such a good question because that's actually the... Reason, I think, I've got into what I do today Great. because I studied zoology, mm-hmm. um, and it was right at the beginning of my zoological career, like during university, that I went out to the Amazon for the first time on a placement. And I've been going to that same country, Guyana, yes, almost every year for ten years now. Um, and when went out there, and my dream was basically to see a jaguar. Didn't see one on that trip, but I'd seen all of these amazing animals, and it really became a bit of a quest for me, right, to see a jaguar because every time I'd gone there, I worked on a big project in Mexico for a few months, never saw a Jaguar. Um, and like other people had, and they'd come back and tell me of how incredible no. it was this mercurial, ins- insanely beautiful, elusive creature. Um, and so I set up, after I, I did a, a master's degree actually partnered with the BBC NHU in Bristol right. um, so learn all of this ability to make films and things and then just went on an expedition with a bunch of my old research friends from Guyana indigenous guys and we went 300 miles into the interior of the jungle with the mission of finding a jaguar
0: and what is it about the jaguar like obviously I know they're this unbelievably beautiful animal that not everybody gets to see mm-hmm. but was there something that like drew you to it
1: yeah massive. I mean I grew up with cats so like we were the crazy cat family we had sure. 12 cats at one point it's a bit nuts we yeah. just could never get they kept breeding and we couldn't spay them and they were so gorgeous <laughs> right, okay. um, but yeah no so I've grown up loving cats but I think there's something about them That I've always been fascinated with because big cats, especially, everything is on their terms. If you see a big cat, it's known where you are long before you've had any idea where it is. And so if it sees you in a place where it's truly wild, I'm not talking about like habituated areas where you can hear
0: cameras somewhere
1: truly wild when a cat sees you and you see the cat it's on its terms and i think that's that's what i always like fight to get it's that moment you were talking about a minute ago about why that what's so amazing about what the build up to that incredible moment for me i got into film i got into science because i love nature and Mm -hmm. i got into film because i saw nature being destroyed and for me the best way of helping you know, biodiversity, conservation, climate change, nature is by communicating it in a better way. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I studied film and I saw um, that there's this hero's journey, this idea of like, if you have a quest and a goal, you can keep audience members attached. Mm. For me, then it became, how do I find an animal that is so hard to spot and so amazing and make a quest about finding it? And that's kind of how I got into making films. Everything I've ever done has been about a quest to find an animal and right at the end, fingers crossed, I find it. And through the journey of that story and the mission to find it and the friends that we meet along the way who tell us how to, we're teaching people about its conservation Mm. and then through the end of it you have that moment where you see it and you're like yes Yes. but actually you probably maybe at least know more if not care more about it
0: so when you drove those 300 miles into the jungle did you did you find
1: we did and i I got a tattoo you can't see it on the podcast obviously (laughs) there is a jaguar and that sparked a kind of like mission for my life about finding big cats and working with big cats right um that's taken me all the way to you know, tigers in India, and now my biggest passion, which is snow leopards in Central Asia.
0: And so when you were a little boy, were you a child that was sort of always outside and mm. always picking up worms and trying to work out what they were up to? And yeah,
1: quite literally. Yeah. yeah. So when my brother um, was, and I think probably like, a lot of young queer kids will identify with this. Um, I wasn't that into sport mm-hmm. when I was sure, a kid. Sure. Um, some are obviously, yeah, but like I think it's one of those things, yeah. That we're a broad church, yeah.
0: If yeah. <laughs> I understood, but you know, some stereotypes are there for a reason, yeah. Sure.
1: Well, no, it's more, I think it's more that that was like that's quite hetero space, and it was always a bit, I was was a bit afraid yes. to get into that space,
0: yes. And it can feel like it's well. It doesn't feel like it's for me, so it just well, I won't yeah, let it be for me because exactly. it feels dangerous. And
1: I love sport. Then right. now, in yeah. my older life, I love sport, but back yes. then it was just, it felt like an impenetra- impenetrable yeah. place. Um, so I just found so much solace in nature because nature's this massive thing. doesn't judge you. No one cares. It, it, animals like you just as much as they like everyone else, which is usually not very much, but yeah. like, <laughs> at least it's the same. So but a tree when,
0: will have the same opinion of you as it has on everyone. Exactly,
1: yeah. And also there's no judgment. And also if you're on your own looking for animals, you can have so much fun. And yeah, it's. I think that's part of the reason why. Because I felt so different as a kid. I'm sure many people did, but like I really felt that. And, and whereabouts of, were you? Where did you grow up? In rural Oxfordshire, mm-hmm. and then in California. So we lived oh, in right. like a, a like the countryside outside rural California. Um, and how
0: what? How old were you, and what took you there?
1: So my dad got like a job nearby mm-hmm. in that sure. area. I was really young. I was like six when we left. It was kind of one of those things. We lived in the middle of these like. Like incredible forests, and mm. um, there were pumas and Anna's hummingbirds and banana slugs—these giant, great big slugs that are bright yellow—and um, that was like a bam. Nature's the most amazing thing. But right. yeah, I spent all my time outside, and I didn't go and play sport like my brother. I would be down with a neighbour looking for snakes in his garden rather than.
0: And were um, you? Is anyone else in your family? Like, was there anyone else in your family that had done? even if not a job like you, but that like had a real keen interest in wildlife?
1: Not really wildlife, but no. my dad was, uh, is a physicist. Right, uh, okay, so science. Um, yeah, he's a scientist, but he, and like m- mathsy things. So he mm. was never really super interested in animals at first. That wasn't really his career, but that's how we connected because sure. like it was science and he's like, he's quite a science-minded person. So it was the best way of sort of connecting with him was being like, completing little maths books and trying to impress him and being like look what animal i found outside and i have identified it
0: oh um, that's really <laughs> cute and were there i know you said you, you you felt like you were i don't know what word you used about um you felt did you say like an outsider as a child mm-hmm. I I would know, say so mis- yeah definitely misrepresent what you've just said but when you moved out to california did you first of all presumably there's a difference in you because you've got a little plummy English accent. Oh, God, yeah. And so was that something that was sort of interested and celebrated or something that was less so by the other
1: children? I I honestly don't remember, like, that much. Yeah, to be honest. But I... Because I was so young, Mm. but, like... And hilarious! it's so funny. You're like, what was that that part like? And I was like, literally no recollection of, like, what people thought of me. All I remember is the parrot that lived in the back garden of the school. What all I do remember, and perhaps I don't remember that that because it was good. Like, Mm. I didn't have a super negative... My memory has been imprinted. Yeah, literally. Whereas it was the schoolyard in the UK that was the time I felt like most othered, and maybe that's because I was just so naturally other in America that that was more interesting than the rest of me.
0: Yeah. And so, how old were you when you came back?
1: About eight. So just a couple of years away. Um, Yeah.
0: And so, did you did you come back to the UK? And I don't know if I'm saying this to someone who is obsessed with wildlife. I don't know if this is a bad thing to say, but did you come back to the UK and you were like? Are you kidding me, the urban fox?
1: like, <laughs> But, like, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And it's taken me so much time to, like, fall in love again with British nature. Mm-hmm. Because I, well, as a young, really small kid, I remember absolutely ad- adoring it. But then it was that trip, honestly, to the States that sparked this obsession with animals around the world. Mm-hmm. And now I would say I know far less about British nature than I do about, for example, you know, the Northern Amazon. Yeah, But, like, I'm now... Coming back to it and realising just how unbelievably amazing our nature is. There's just less of it because we've gotten rid of so much of it. But actually, it's super yeah. cool. And actually, walking around London. Like, I I haven't lived in London in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And seeing foxes run around at night, oh. and that you can get super close to them. I, everyone's so
0: brazen. Yeah,
1: I love it.
0: And there's one that sleeps in our garden and brings us things.
1: <laughs>
0: so, it'll be like, the other day it brought half a get. It's just taken from someone's bin. That's
1: quite polite, actually.
0: Yeah. I thought, God, how tough is this baguette that this fox is even like, oh, no, my
1: teeth. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, the other day it brought a shoe, put it by the door. Is this fox trying to get inside? Is it bringing you presents? I don't know. But it
0: brings things and then, like, sort of leaves them in the same area of our garden. You should give it
1: peanut butter.
0: No, I don't want to encourage it. No,
1: definitely encourage it.
0: Because... He digs up my plants.
1: Oh, are you a gardener?
0: Well, I'm trying to be. I'm. I've. We, we, we have a very nice guy who's like helped. We've not long moved into our place. And basically, I, I spoke to a gardener. I was like, look, I want to be able to maintain this myself, but I need a bit of help sort of getting the ball yeah, rolling. Fair. And so I am newly green-fingered. They're not green yet. They're sort of... Do you know
1: what would get you super into your garden? Go on. Make a pond?
0: Yeah, I think that would be
1: great. It's the, literally the best thing you can put in a garden. It'll bring all the animals. Everything will go there. It could be literally less than a meter in diameter. And
0: I like that you're like, not, this
1: is not going in the podcast.
0: <laughs> no, it is <laughs> going in the podcast. I'm just not sure. We have we have a real issue with snails on our road. Mm-hmm. I'll show you a photo when we finish. Uh, my daughter collected all of the snails in the garden, and we rehomed them in a recreational place near our house which I don't know if that's a terrible thing to do Dan you're looking at me like it might be but it was eating <laughs> no I just right. want to know
1: who who's re- whose garden was the recreational oh, on, place
0: <laughs> on um, on the Devil's Dykes in Brighton it's like uh, okay. it's huge mm-hmm. and so um we told our daughter, we were like, make sure we've got all of them so they're with their friends. <laughs>
1: so we, I That's quite know, good pest control, actually. Yeah,
0: I don't know whether... I mean, I think, like, other people in the road are like, oh, no, just put down slug repellent. But I didn't want to kill them all because there was literally, like, a
1: hundred of them. And I was like, they're like a family. <laughs> Get the pond. It'll be full of things that come and they eat your snails. I'm telling you, you start the pond... You get all the frogs and the amphibians. You get the little bits in there. You get the insects. Everything starts to enjoy your garden. It's the best garden in the area. Then you get the thrushes coming along. And then every all the birds, they'll start killing the snails. Right now, you've just got plants and snails.
0: Yeah, they're a nightmare. Mm. You should see my sunflower. What they have done to it? <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> anyway, less about my garden and more about your <laughs> impressive life as an explorer. <laughs> so you said you felt othered. How much of you, when you were... I don't know, that, that, that little boy back in an English playground. I'm sort of imagining with like a magnifying glass looking at things. Um, how, how much were you aware of your queerness or your... Uh, the, 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 did your otherness have a, an identity or a name even by that point?
1: I don't think so. No. No, I think it was just a weird kid. I think my mum knew. She says now that right. she was like pretty aware because her best mate was gay. Right, um, okay, and they were just... And, and like, so she'd grown up, like, surrounded by queer people. As
0: Tom Allen has said in the past, you know, you sometimes can tell if someone
1: has been blessed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she definitely did. Right. I mean, so she probably had an idea for it, but obviously didn't, like, go to a pre-10-year-old. Like, yeah. I think I know what's going on here. Um, but, so, no, it wasn't until I was, like, 11, 12, and I started to realise it, that, like... A, it had a place, but B, it was like, oh, damn, it's that. And I think when I was younger and obviously, like, Mm. I was a bit bullied for it at school. For being being, gentle? For being gay, actually. So they all told me before I was ready to tell everyone else. Yeah, that's something that
0: has come up so many times on this podcast, where people call you names before you have owned it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as soon as you own it. Then they stop calling you the names. Yes. Of it's course. weird, isn't it? Or when
0: you come out and then people go, Oh, I've always known. And you go, Please don't invalidate how hard this has just been <laughs> yeah. for me. This has been really hard. Don't take that away from me. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Just nod and smile and say, That's great for you. Like, good, good for you. Mm. And put an arm around someone. Um, right. So, yeah, that's really tough.
1: But, yeah, I think what it was, like, I super, I loved wildlife and I was super into it. And it was kind of my whole world. But then when I started to like realise, Ah, oh, I think I'm gay. There was like twofold, which was school and that stuff. I mean, it was it is what it is. Mm. It was, I, I don't think it like it was sad that it wasn't, you know, a little bit annoying, but it mm. wasn't really the part that internally made me struggle. It was more that I just was like, no one does this. Who is that? So I associated the game aspect of me with not being what I wanted to do and be. And I think that was probably a harder part. And it probably took me longer co- to come out. Because the people that I absolutely idolised, not one of them, had mm. that trait, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, of course. It can feel very isolating if you if you don't see anyone like you mm. doing what you dream of. Yeah. Because were you... And I don't know if this is so bloody obvious, but was it people like
1: Raynulf... Ranulf fines?
0: Ranulf Fines yeah. and David Attenborough and people yeah. like that, they're like actual explorers. Steve
1: Backshaw. Right. People who are all amazing and legends yes. and like you know some of them I've been lucky enough to like meet and work with in Inca- yeah. capacity and uh, wicked people like, yes. like Steve Backshall an absolute legend um, but 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 again not really like me I've never felt like I could actually sit at that table and just like have an like have a completely open and chilled chat in the yes. same way that I would with my mates yes. like it feels like two separate worlds
0: yes and you always worry don't you when you're if your sort of hero isn't like you you for me don't know if anyone, everyone always worries but certainly for me i think there's been times when i've gone oh god what about if they're like secretly homophobic what, yeah, they don't yeah like me because of this this thing that i don't control mm.
1: or it'll just be weird yeah like even if they're not that was, her, yeah just like, like slightly ah, different yeah. you're, you're you're one of those you're something different mm. which is really and i used to get a lot so when i started doing presenting i get a lot of i've never like i've never heard of like a gay guy like doing an expedition. And I'm like, stop saying that. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> you actually will have done. Of course. Like they've, they've existed. Also, there could be.
0: They're, they're, I, I wonder whether there's a misinformed undercurrent to that of being like, oh, you're brave yeah. and gay. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? But then, yeah. of course, queer people or people who have been outsiders in any way and have had the strength to speak up. Are actually the bravest of all of us Mm -hmm. certainly people that have come before us yeah that were brave enough to be out in 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 a time when it i mean it's it's hard now for many people but when it was much much harder for many many more reasons you know i think that you know it's like when you find out that you know when people are surprised when gay
1: people are tough and you're like
0: Mm. of course we're fucking tough we've had to be tough (laughs) historically within our community we've had to be tough and the traits
1: that you associate as tough aren't actually yes, descriptive of, course, of what of it is to be tough of
0: course yeah mm. totally and so at what point did you think this can be my job the nature not the games? Mm.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can make a career out. oh of this. my god this is a job
0: <laughs> um did you know that it was like an actual like obviously you would seen people mm. doing it but at what point did you go oh this this isn't just like a dream and obviously those people get to do it but at what point did you go, can I I could do this?
1: Mm. Well actually so like I my parents have always been amazing, mm-hmm. and they've been so—they've always pushed me to do things mm. that I want to do, yeah—and have never ever made me feel othered in mm. that respect in my life. Like it's always been like, you can do whatever you want, like just work hard at it. And I think with that, it was so I left school when I was sixteen because I didn't know what to do. I was all panicked, you know, school's yeah. a bit tough, and I was like, don't really want to yeah. do much more of this. And totally I've just been given the that. out, so like, yeah, I'll take the out. Yeah, totally um, get that. But then, so what did you do? So I, I, I it was always between arts and sciences. So my mum's an artist oh, cool. um, by trade, and my dad's obviously a map, like a of scientists so you really had was, like both of them
0: in there like, yeah, yeah,
1: the like, and yeah. they are exactly as you'd imagine as well right. like the two complete opposite worlds it was always between like i loved film i loved art and so but i also had no um like route into that and yes. then science was kind of more obvious route which was like go to school study science and then go to uni and do science Um, so I left and then I did like a couple of courses at this local charity film school near my house um, in film directing and making documentary was that also in
0: Oxfordshire yeah in Oxford um, no Oxfordshire Yeah, yeah back
1: in Oxford and it was super cool I really like I loved that but it was like I realised that what I really loved was the science. So I went back to college and uh, did, like, my A-levels and stuff and went to go to study zoology at Sheffield University, Mm -hmm. which was amazing.
0: is, Is that a course that happens... That, is, that, is that an infrequent course? Zoology oh no, is it everywhere. everywhere. Is oh my god!
1: Yeah, everyone. Yeah, it's, I mean, I when totally you can, get it. It's wicked. It's basically biology, but you don't have to do the human stuff. Yeah, great. You just took a look at animals and plants. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that does sound brilliant. <laughs> it's really cool. But that's how many best. of those people do you think end up working in the field?
1: Probably not that many. Yeah. A lot of them go into accounting, do a lot of statistics.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure,
1: <laughs> but, sure. But like that. But of of the biological sciences, that's the one that you get a lot of biologists coming from.
0: Right. Okay,
1: um, but in my course there was a mycology, so fungi lecturer, um, and I knew nothing about fungi at the time mushrooms yeah, and, and yeah. like all the craziness that comes from them honestly look it up my fungus is amazing i mean i've heard about magic ones yeah so I've well heard about yeah, it. there's the magic <laughs> ones there's there's also just like the mind controlling ones that we can get onto in a minute if you i like.
0: mean i've listened to you talk about the yeah. mind control tell us a little bit about that in a minute um, it sounds like it's verging on conspiracy theory but it's <laughs> <that's> actually true <laughs> no it's terrifying true, and i literally
1: just saw loads of it um, but this guy who was the mycology lecturer he was gay Super open about it. He was the first out scientist, Duncan Cameron, that I had ever, like, just been, like, shown. And I was like, this dude is amazing and were you out by this point uh, so that was when I just started like really coming out yeah So just that must It been uni.
0: enormously inspiring yeah
1: it was wicked the, I had the best coming out story I just told the bitchiest girl I knew and she told everyone it was ideal oh <laughs> I was like I'm not going to do it to everyone so I'll just tell her and it was perfect she was amazing she did the job One. she did the, once, she did like. the announcement I don't, don't get me wrong I absolutely adore this girl <laughs> she is a bitch and I knew she would tell is she still a friend yeah I won't name her but, no, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's great. If you like, you know, you, you know when you don't want to brag about stuff, but yeah. you've got that friend that you can go. So I'm hosting like the Apollo. Okay. Yeah. That'll be around the circuit in 10
1: minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi guys, Fatia El Ghori here. Quick question, bruv. Do you like to laugh? Do you like to give money to good causes? Of course you do, bruv. Of course you do. Well, listen. On Thursday, the second of November, at Hackney Empire, I'm hosting a comedy night with a star-studded lineup. Heard of Rob Beckett, Jack D, Kerry Goddyman, Axel Blake, Joanne McNally, Harry Hill well yeah i pulled some strings didn't i they're all gonna be joining me to raise money for the british red cross morocco earthquake and libya floods appeal it's a win for your dopamine levels and your morals so get your tickets at hackney empire or ticketmaster see you there innit But yeah, no. And he was wicked. That guy was amazing. And I, I think it was then that I was like, OK, cool. I feel like super chill now. And the, and at uni, like there's so many different sorts of yeah, people sure. and they've all kind of like found their own way to these things. And also I realised from seeing guys like that and all the people around me in science that actually there's loads of queer people that do this. They're just not platformed on media. Yes. Um, and then it became a lot more simpler. Yeah. And then a lot a series of very lucky situations happened that meant that after I got into telly and I was working behind the scenes in wildlife documentaries. Right, okay, so
0: that's that was your route in, you were doing... Yeah. So what sort of stuff were you... Were you, like, going there before how does it work Do you, does the crew go out and mm. like make sure check the shots find out where the animals are is it that sort of thing not
1: sometimes right. there might be a recce but that's yeah. not the side of TV I worked in right, so okay. I, I, I've done like a bunch of shoots and things but largely my own independent films yes. when I work in TV I actually developed ideas for other presenters okay. so I would come up with formats sure. um, so for example I would look at a, a talent or a presenter that was like up and coming and doing amazing things and I would in the nature try and, area well it could even be it could be like Stacey Do. Um oh. I developed a concept for Hamza Yassin, which one day I really hope comes off. Wow. Um, but like those, then uh, you see these people and you're like, what? I wonder what their connection to nature is. And then you start doing a bit of digging and then you, you realise, oh my God, this is really cool. And you actually have. And then that's how I would build a, um, an idea. Um, but it worked out great because then when I started being like, I could do that for me. Yes, it really of helped.
0: course. <laughs> how interesting. Go on then, tell us about those mushrooms. Okay.
1: This is terrifying. And it's not just, it's not just fungi. Yeah. So like fungi, we're much closer related to than we are to plants. Like people think that plants and fungi are quite similar a lot of the time. They're in fact completely evolutionary different and plants are much less similar to fungi as fungi are to us. Okay. Um, But it means that they have these amazing abilities that uh, other, other, that plants don't seem to have. One of which is the ability to, to infect animals insects. So when fungi first evolved, they co-evolved with plants and, and insects. Those animals have been alive far longer than humans and yes. even mammals have ever existed yeah. on the planet. And so they've been evolving for these millions, if not billions of years, um, to have these incredible symbioses, interactions between them. And one of which is this fungal parasite called cordyceps, which is has thousands of species all over the world, typically in tropical forests. Um, and it impacts, and, and each species of cordyceps impacts infects its own unique species of invertebrates. So I think people think that this one from the last of us, Cordyceps, is this one species that may or may not exist in the natural world and it just diversified and mutated to attack humans. No, there's actually thousands of these uh, and they specialise in one particular invertebrate. It could be a spider, it could be an ant, it could be a wasp. And they can troll. control their minds. So what will happen is the, the spores will be in the atmosphere in, in the air and they'll land on or will be eaten by let's say it's a wasp. And then that and was. And the
0: spores have come from the fungi.
1: Come from the fungi, so it can sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a mushroom. So when you yeah. see a mushroom on the ground, yeah. that's just the fruiting body. The fungus is much larger organism mu- under the ground. Right. The fungi is basically just the flower of the plant. Okay. Yeah, and so it's it's just a reproductive organ, and sometimes they only exist for a day, and then they release their spores, and then they pff, go away. Um, but those spores will hit an a, uh, an unexpected insect mm-hmm. um, and people think of uh, insects as having these, like this shell on top of them, which is impenetrable. Yeah, but it's more like um, I learnt this from my friend Erica McAllister. She's the um, Natural History Museum's curator of flies and fleas. Um, <laughs> that they're actually a series of plates, like a uh, suit of armour for a soldier. And if the so spore. Body, little breaks yeah and if the spore gets in there or it's eaten it will stay in the body and for a couple of days nothing will happen the animal will carry on its normal jobs and then slowly it's its body will start to jut around i'm moving i've realized there's a podcast no, on the TV. No, no, um, but it uh, the movement starts to jar and go strange and it will it, basically this fungus has got inside the central nervous system and even into the muscles and it's mechanically moving and impacting the brain for this insect to go as high as the fungus needs it to, to the perfect humidity, the perfect place for it to release its spores. And when it's got to that spot, and it's forced this insect to move to that area, the last thing it does is it gets its mandibles and it forces the insect to bite down, so it's wrapped in place and wrap its legs around whatever it's on and then it will consume the rest of the insect and burst out of all of those gaps in the suits of armor in the insect and those mushrooms will start to form maybe out of the head typically out of the head um and then the spores will be released at that perfect spot for the mushroom uh, for the fungus and those will fly out and impact another insect but that's amazing and that and that is one <laughs> zombie parasite that exists in the natural world luckily it doesn't impact humans yet but there's so many different ones there's fluke worms which impact ants and the ant it forces the ant it basically needs to get into a cow it starts its life in an ant it needs to get into a cow and it forces the ant to climb to the edge of a blade of grass but only at night and it will sit there zombified doing nothing in the night. And then when the day breaks, the ant comes back alive and it goes down to the bottom of the blade of grass and it carries on doing all of its tasks for the queen ant and living its normal life. And then when night falls again, it climbs to the edge of that blade of grass and it sits there zombified, waiting to be eaten by a cow. And the reason it's doing it at night is because that parasite is basically, that parasite basically doesn't want to desiccate and it will and, so right, okay. and if the sun is beating down on that blade of grass, so dry out. Right. And if the sun is beating down on that blade of grass, it will die, and it will kill the ant in the in the uh, heat of the sun. So it only does it at night, and lets the ant carry on its life in and the day. And
0: it just it would just be until that one cow in the night eats goes, it. I'm peckish.
1: Yeah, and eats the blade <laughs> of grass. But there's one that impacts humans, and it's got it's called Toxoplasma gondii. It's not meant to uh, impact humans, but it's a cat and a rat parasite. And what Ooh. it does, it gets into rats. And then it, the next part of the parasite's life cycle has to get into a cat. Um, so the cat has to eat the rat. So cats have to eat the rat in order for that to happen. So what the parasite does, it gets into the brain of the rat and it makes them like the smell of cats. It like <gasps> makes them like the smell of cat urine, less afraid of cats, more likely to run in front of uh, moving traffic or caught, risk commit risky behaviours and if it gets into a human, it makes us more at risk of walking in front of moving traffic, it makes us more at risk of general risky behaviour and even risky sexual behaviour, less likely to wear a condom.
0: No like that. way! Mm-hmm.
1: And, th- and that is called Toxoplasma gondii. It's a really interesting example of how parasitism, that, is n- that parasite is not linked to us, but can get into us. Um, and then
0: how would yeah. we get it from the cat?
1: So actually, a lot of people in the UK have Toxoplasma. Um, it's called Toxoplasmosis. It can impact many different things other than that. Um, it can impact uh, pregnant women, for example, in negative ways. Um, but it, basically, if you have cats, and you live in a house with cats, and the cats are pooing everywhere, because the, in order to get into the rat afterwards, it's the poo of the cat, and it gets like passed on through that. So um, a large a very large percentage, a larger percentage than you'd probably want to think is impacted by Toxoplasma. So if you think about those people who, you know, you might think they have some really Behaviors, maybe they're maybe you shouldn't be so mean to them because they might have a parasite living in their brain. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but there's loads of them, and uh, mind control's everywhere. And I think it's if we're always trying to convince people to care more about climate change, and I think that that's a, a, one of the best ways to do it. It's like, guys, you're obviously not being um, impacted enough by these like natural disasters and communities being affected. Yes. What about if climate increased global temperatures uh, enough that uh, fungal pathogens like cordyceps mut enough to impact humans because i'll tell you if there was one pathogen type of pathogen that would cause a uh, a global pandemic far more dangerous and far more more impacting than covid it would be a fungal one
0: yeah. that is fascinating <laughs> <laughs> that is fascinating dan oh my god so she talked about climate change. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of like, I'm I'm a bit...
1: I love telling these stories. Like nature is full of such unbelievably cool stuff. And I feel like we don't have enough biologists like just like yamming on about it. We need more of it. Yeah, it's
0: fascinating. Mm. Cool area. Yeah, it really is. But you mentioned then climate change. And that's Mm. something I've got on my my list of questions to ask you about. But I was wondering, obviously, it sounds like a very stupid question because I imagine everywhere you go, you see impacts of climate change. Mm how much has that become something... I know that you said that you, when you were first sort of interested in wildlife, you wanted to be able to, you know, save wildlife and save things. But I guess sort of the... the speed with which climate change is now happening in a way that maybe we didn't... Well, biologists probably knew about it 20, 30 years ago, but the the wider population weren't really taking it seriously. How much has that now become something that is sort of... a a push within yourself within your work mm. to let people know about how this is affecting our world
1: yeah i mean it's the biggest issue of our time mm. i think one of the the most difficult parts about it is how do we communicate that in a way that makes everybody come together and fight mm. for it rather than causing which i sometimes see at the moment which is ridiculous but people seem to be fighting more within yeah. um and talking about the issues issues associated with it like people having a go like uh, um the activists trying to stop it I'm like why are you doing that when actually there's this massive looming yeah. problem that's going to destroy yeah, the planet like, I don't think that like
0: stopping the cricket for 15 minutes like if we've got no world you won't be playing your fucking cricket yeah. <laughs> you know like that we know if it's too hot to be outside cricket yeah. will stop so will the
1: tennis exactly and I think that stuff's really important actually because a lot of the time in hi- in the history of big movements like, yeah. uh, like anger is it, it does work of, like of look of at course. the Stonewall, Stonewall riots for Absolutely. example yeah, and,
0: the, and the women's movement yeah you absolutely know, it, it was
1: you know really important but at, at the same time as that I do think that there are other ways that we can explore that also in tandem can help to bring yes. people on board yes. which are so more positive for both example both
0: existing would be good yeah <laughs> bringing people in
1: yeah because you need to in order to make these problems go away in order to fix at least m- a lot of the potential problems that could arise from climate change, we need to work with everybody, and everybody needs to work together. Mm. Like even if you were at Shell, one of the most soulless, awful companies mm. in the world, th- there is a place for people within that company to bring it down from there too. So I wouldn't yeah. say like everyone quit. I'd be like, no, change it from the inside. Yeah. Eat them like the parasitic fungus. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I. Um, but uh, in 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 terms of my work, because I'm I I'm really. I'm very passionate about like put, putting forward, like, and pushing to the front um, of the conversation, like global activists and people who you know live in the front lines of where these things are happening. But at the same time, I think just showing amazing parts of the world is valuable, um, and also places that are starting to change. Like even in the ten years that I've been going to Guyana in the north of South America, for example, first time I went there. Um, there were the whispers in the early stages of like some of the issues that I'd seen now have now seen but for example L- like, like what so back then the 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 rainy season uh, mm-hmm. between sort of january and uh, and april end of april may would be clockwork and that's when it would happen the the dry season then and the wet season in in um in uh summer and up till october time and it'd be clockwork you'd know that the water would be low and uh, it would be very, very hot, very little rain. And then it would be very uh, high water levels, yes. lots of rain. That's completely changed now. There's no uh, rhyme or reason to when the dry or wet season are coming. Not you at all. Bas- basically <gasps> nothing. Like it's it, the, it's just a, a mosaic of random situations that mean, oh, it's a really dry uh, December now or it's a really dry um, wet season or a really wet dry season and that is a direct link of climate change and you speak to indigenous people out there they're like no it's always been the same it's always been equal it's always been clockwork and it, in the last decade it's started to really change and now it's and now it's just random um you know, and those things are huge and, and also they're undeniable mm. um but then other places so there's this amazing ecosystem that i've worked at uh, at before and hoping to go next summer as well um, in Mexico so the the second largest contiguous forest uh, or connected forest in the Americas is the Selva Maya, which is right. this giant great big area in the Yucatan Mexico area okay um, and what that... sort of
0: an, can you because I am terrible at geography mm-hmm. and I'm embarrassed by how little I know I'm fascinated by everything you're telling me but for maybe me and maybe other people listening yeah. what would that forest look like
1: okay so that's a dry forest okay but what's so cool about it is it's a dry Scrubby forest um, and it has all those same Amazonian animals in it so right. jaguars tapirs the largest terrestrial an- animal in the in the Amazon it's kind uh-huh. of like a, a, a horse mixed with an elephant mixed with a cow mixed with a pig um, but it's got all of these amazing animals spider monkeys howler monkeys macaws all yeah. these incredible anim- yeah. Amazonian animals but that forest isn't natural there's no rivers across the entire area all these it's all the water it all comes from rain and these like semi-permanent like Ponds called aguadas, um, right. and if they dry up, there's no water in the whole forest, and that's because the Mayans made that forest. Their temples are everywhere, and the fruit around the temples, which feeds the primates and feeds the animals, which in turn feeds the jaguars, because the primates that fall or the animals that eat those fruit on the they floor all of the jaguars, together. yeah, the Mayans made it, but it means that this amazing, beautiful, incredible forest is completely at the mercy of climate change. So as temperatures are getting drier and hotter, everything's drying up. So the work I was doing out there was literally just pouring water into troughs so that animals had something to drink. When I mean, you think about that as an impact, right? This giant forest, it's been there for thousands of years and since the fall you of the with mines. The reusable water, yeah, water. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going there, filling up troughs with water so tapirs can drink, hoping the rains will come. And every year, the rains get less and less and less.
0: And then what would happen to those animals? Would it be... Obviously, some would die, but mm-hmm. then it would it be a migration thing where then there'd be too many animals in one place? Would it be?
1: Well, that's what is so. As places get fragmented and uh, fragmented and destroyed, before the animals fully die out, they do get concentrated to areas. You see mm-hmm. that with lemurs in Madagascar. Yeah. Forests is yes, very low, yes. but lemurs are all in one in yeah. very small pockets. But really, in a place like that, most of the animals would die because yeah. where would they go? There's no forest for them to yes, go. Yes, of course, because it's yeah and as it shrinks so that's where I look at things and I'm like that's where what I really want to inspire people about with climate change is to imagine these amazing incredible locations that like are breathtakingly beautiful yeah. um, and they could go and they are going and that's why we need to
0: Yeah. Stop. And, what, and one of those most recent series of David Attenborough was a bit at the end where he was basically going for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously. Yeah. Come on, guys. So David can't say that. Yeah. But there it's was, been a while. Yeah, there was a bit at the end where I was like, God, I feel like I've just been bollocked by David yeah. <laughs> Who do I need to donate to? But it is getting to that stage. Yeah,
1: but also at the same time, there's so much to save. I mean, I like to, like, people can get, like, and there's a lot of sadness and, and difficulty with all of it, but actually, like, you, this is the first mass extinction. We've had five mass extinctions yes. in history caused by climatic events or um, an asteroid taking the planet, for example. Um, And this is the first, the sixth mass extinction, the Anthropocene, as it's known, uh, caused by just one species, which is us, humans. But that also means we have this immense amount of power that we can do the opposite. So also the first time in history that one species can stop a um, uh, mass extinction and I think that that's the way I like to look at it instead mm. of being like we're destroying the planet we're also the only ones that can stop it and we have the capability to do so um, and I, I do have a belief that everybody will you know buck okay. up their act
0: okay so if someone's listening to this right now and like me have, become, have been enthralled and inspired by your storytelling today what what is the things that we can do not only sort of day to day in our life but where should we be looking to support if we can or what should we be How should we be becoming more
1: aware and more educated in this area? Hmm. I think, like, amazingly, so many people already are. I think that that, that that's a question that's asked a lot. How do we do? But actually so many people are already doing it. Mm. The younger generation nowadays is super, super interested in saving the planet which mm-hmm. is really great um but just like joining groups of people making coalitions we're stronger in groups than we are on our own um creating coalitions of people that uh, care about uh, the planet come from different backgrounds and different places around the world so we can have a more um full uh, uh, understanding of what's what actions happen in, uh, what actions consequences happen in different parts of the world um to understand that like the privileges that we might have here mm. in our part of the world, um, uh, are mean that we should be doing more to help people in parts of the world who are suffering at the hands yes. of things that we we're doing, perhaps. Um, and also just like maybe like if if the if someone who's listening is someone who's a bit like oh god, I'm hearing a lot about activism and like like stopping oil, and I'm just like it's, instead of like worrying about that, maybe try to think about why people are really fighting so hard for it and to read maybe read one or two books about climate change mm. um because uh, as soon as you start to educate yourself like properly into the the very real science around climate change and how fast we're going towards an unlivable future mm. i think as soon as you learn that then it becomes much more easy to engage with that side of it and that just the movement grows and there are other and there are ways that we can um And vote out the Tories. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) vote out the Tories. Yeah, I'm just trying to try try trying to go any other way, but that's probably the best.
0: Right, I'm going to ask you the final question. I have loved this. I can't tell you how much I've loved this. (laughs) This has been utterly fascinating and inspiring, and I'm sure all my listeners, not my listeners, the show's listeners, are thinking the exact same thing. I ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is sort of a a phone call, an email, a letter to a younger version of you or indeed maybe someone that's listening mm. that's going through a similar thing and I'm I'm maybe I'm thinking about that version of Dan who had been in California with those big yellow slugs and um, exciting parrots and <laughs> animals, you know not quite on your doorstep but quite near to your doorstep if you could reach out to him when he had just got back to the UK and maybe was looking at snail uninspired and was feeling like a real outsider or someone that's feeling like that right now and you could give them a bit of advice and pop
1: an arm around their shoulder what would you say? Mm. I would probably say that all of the parts of you that you think are weird and you're almost embarrassed about are going to be the things that eventually uh, make you most proud of yourself
0: perfect way to end the conversation please look up dan on instagram and on all the other things he's as dan o wild and stay across all the exciting things that he's doing and watch his shows and yeah i'm uh, i've loved this conversation thank you for taking the time
1: thanks for having me oh
0: my pleasure my pleasure
1: <laughs> i've really enjoyed your show <laughs> well
0: thanks that's nice of you today <laughs> that was dan o'neill how fascinating is he Oh, we had such a lovely chat and then didn't stop chatting, went for a walk afterwards. And then we met up with each other at the Attitude Awards, and he's become a friend and he's just a dream. So I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I'll be back next week with another brilliant, brilliant chat. And until then, take care. Bye bye.